Welcome to Healthy Schools Coffee Shop, where all the tea is piping hot with a side of shade, served by students for students in Philly public schools. Through this podcast, we'll be sharing the lived experiences of students, educators, community members, and leaders navigating injustice and structural violence against Philadelphia public school students and imagining a future where schools can be healthy. Actually, healthy. This podcast is created and produced by youth organizers and Viet Leeds Healthy Schools Campaign. Ethan, Alina, Peter, Christina, Candy, Ryan, and Quinn. On the menu, we have episodes under COVID-19 and toxic conditions, democratically elected school board, and tax abatement and pilots. I'm one of your hosts, Candy. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a Chinese-American rising freshman at Temple University. Um, I started working with Viet Lead in the summer of 2020, interning with them through the Rice program, and I was interested in healthy schools advocacy work uh, since I've learned that the since I've learned about the toxic conditions our schools are in. Philadelphians deserve better schools, schools that don't poison their occupants. I'm Ethan, your second host. I go by he/him pronouns, and I am an Indonesian American rising junior at Central High. And my first time with working with Viet Lead was at the beginning of 2020, as I was a volunteer for their Thut event. And I decided to join them after and decided to advocate for healthy schools with them because of my lack of knowledge and for the many staff and students that have been horribly affected by their unhealthy school environment. And I'm your last host, Alina. My pronouns are she, her, and I am a Vietnamese American rising senior at Central. I began working with Lead during the summer of 2020 when I joined SOAR 5.0. I was interested in healthy schools advocacy work because I'm passionate about getting funding for public schools so that they can all be safe for students and staff. Somewhere in the city, Viet Lead community thought we could do something to help our schools get what they need. But it's not easy to do this alone. That's why we need your ears today. In this episode, we will talk about toxic conditions and the return of in-person learning during the pandemic. In Philly public schools, lead, asbestos, mold, and pests are running rampant in buildings, signifying school conditions are unkept and not safe for students and staff. To make matters worse, the school district of Philadelphia has been constantly trying to send students and teachers back to school during the COVID-19 pandemic, which they already have at the end of the last school year, even without a real plan. As part of the, the Healthy Schools campaign, it is our duty to fight for these changes as these circumstances cause harm to the staff and students and sometimes even family members inside of these Philly public schools. We interviewed three people, Christopher Velasco, Catherine Riley, and David Backer, one student and two teachers respectively, to discuss some of these issues, including their thoughts on building conditions, their personal experiences, and why this is happening. We then proceeded to cover the school district reopening plan and their feelings about it. So let's sit down, grab a cup of cold brew coffee, and enjoy the tea that we are about to spill. To start off, let's talk about the infrastructure of Philly schools. How are their building conditions and what do you think about them? Broadly speaking, um, it's disappointing to see buildings that are in disrepair. Uh, From 
personal experience, I've dealt with anything from um, insects to mice in buildings, um, leaks in ceilings, but I also know colleagues at other schools have even more serious problems that range from asbestos to um, you know, lack of basic supplies like soap, paper towels, and um, you know some of these buildings. I just I am genuinely concerned about things like lead in the buildings as well. Um, so I would not give the the building conditions any vote of confidence in the city overall. This is Catherine Riley, a Philadelphia charter school teacher. In 2017, there was an independent report that found that the school district needed $4.5 billion of infrastructure work and teachers getting cancer, kids getting sick, ceilings falling through with water, mold. It's very clear to everyone involved. Uh, I think from the highest level to the, to the students, to staff at these schools, they know that the buildings are falling apart. It's not a, I don't think it's a even open secret. I mean, everyone just knows that. That is the other teacher that we spoke with, David Packer. He is a professor of educational policy at Westchester University of Pennsylvania, an organizer with LILAC, which is a Philadelphia socialist organizing group, and a parent of a Philadelphia student. Yeah, I, de I definitely can say the same thing. And there's a whole lot of problems like with the materials used as well. There's been so many studies shown where there's asbestos and leads all over the place. Like you said, headlines are so often about the dangerous spaces that the school conditions hold mm -hmm. because of that, like, for example, that one Palumbo story from sure. a while back ago when the whole ceiling collapsed. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just, yeah, how does that even happen? Adding on to that, all of the school buildings that I have ever been to always have all sorts of pests all over the place like roaches mice and so many more i've seen baby cockroaches on my window shades i've seen dead cockroaches oh. just around which you know to a certain extent large buildings are going to have problems like that but one would think that when they are present that there would be something done about it to prevent the spread of said pest that reminds me of the cockroach there's a cockroach in our school right and they killed it and then they made an Instagram account out of it. And it was like Rip <laughs> Benvolio. One of my early experiences teaching in the city, at the end of the day, I was cleaning up my classroom, just sort of sweeping out bits of paper and, and arranging desks. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw something move. And thinking for a moment, it was just, you know, I was tired at the end of the day. Uh, but lo and behold, it was a mouse um, that apparently some people knew about that would be in the particular part of the building I was in. I can share that same story with you, actually. I think it was about last year. There was a mouse inside of my advisory class, and it apparently it housed itself right next to where <laughs> I was sitting. It just kind of goes to show how normalized it's become, and I don't think it should be normalized because everyone there was so lighthearted about it. They say like, oh, this is usual. They even tried to make it our class pet. I don't know if they ever set up traps or attempted to deal with the problem, but I just, I don't know what 
the building would be like now without having people in it for over a year. Public schools have been like this for decades and have greatly affected the people that attend on a regular basis. How are students and teachers being affected by these conditions? The condition of the school is not the best. It's kind of, I don't know if you've ever been in the, because the elite has programs in Furnace. So I am in Furnace. And some of the classes are not really good. I can't explain the structure of the whole school, but there's like, I know, I know like there's a teacher that has asthma and some of the, some of the classes that she's in, there's the walls are all ripped and these, they throw these chemicals that cause her to, her asthma to like, I guess go more worse or she gets more sick. Um, our school is really old. It's about a hundred years old, I guess. And it has never been like kind of fixed or anything about any parts. That was Christopher Velasco, a rising senior at Furness High School. Why are building conditions the way they are? There's a clear story, I think, of how it happens. And this is something that I've been researching. It's that, uh, well, to take care of your school buildings, you need money. And you also need, you need a, a city infrastructure that's capable uh, uh, and of organizing a massive, massive infrastructure projects like, like this. But, you, but also, the, you know, that, that, the, that capability, behind that capability is political will, organization, and proper, proper funding. And mm-hmm. the, f- the school funding in, in Philadelphia is a mess uh, compared to um, surrounding, surrounding school districts. The inequality is off the charts. And when it comes to infrastructure in particular, um, first of all, infrastructure is like a massive project, right? Uh, building um, buildings, taking care of buildings, lots of resources, and it's it's they call capital intensive. There's there's a lot of money that's required upfront to be able to do this, to kind of hire the right, hire enough people, get the right kind of materials, and not only is school funding in terms of taxation unequal for the kind of year to year operating costs of the schools um, and which, and that problem derives from property values and uh, property taxes, um, which when you have uh, the poorest city in the United States, you're going to have problems with respect to being able to get enough money out of your property value tax wise to be able to take care of your, you know, year to year, budget costs when it comes to schools. But there's another thing that's also rooted in, in property values and, and city revenue, but that's being able to get loans, to be able to get credit up front, to be able to pay for these huge infrastructure projects. And school districts get credit ratings like people do, uh, like people have a credit score. People who uh, they either don't make a lot of money or they can't make payments on their debts get low credit scores, which means that it's riskier to give them loans. Um, and when it's riskier, uh, you know, they get a higher interest rate, um, less available funds, that kind of thing. And that's what it's been like for Philadelphia as a district over the last 50 years. The, um, the city has not looked like a good investment for bondholder, the bondholders, the bondholder class, who are the people who would front large sums of money to a, something like a Philadelphia school district. 
to take care of its buildings. And um, so there just hasn't been, uh, there hasn't been an opportunity to get good credit, to be able to get enough money up front to do the infrastructure combined with the low property values in the, um, when it comes to property taxes, there just hasn't been enough money. So you get this $4.5 billion problem over, over a period of 50 years, people getting cancer, the ceiling falls in, you know, that's, yeah, that's how it happens. And, and so it's a really deep problem. And I don't really think anyone knows how to fix it, frankly. Why are building conditions the way they are? What's astounding to me is that uh, we live in a, a society that's permitted it to happen. Um, and the fact that it just happens and that over the last 50 years, is, there just hasn't been the kind of money or funding that's mm-hmm. been available to be able to take care of these buildings for majority people of color city for this program the way that people have leaders i'm talking about leaders now political leaders business leaders have chosen to handle the problem is by essentially trying out a new kind of ruling class in the school district in terms of charter schools rather than actually just fixing the buildings i i think about it every day i think about it all the time our school doesn't have enough money to pay or this district does doesn't have enough to pay the whole because it's expensive to just fix the whole school building and then kids I mean they could fix it right now due to kids going virtually but I haven't seen anything I haven't heard about any about the school yet I'm at a point me personally I feel like even if we if there were loans enough money to fix everything up I I just have a feeling that there's a there's going to be a point where the school district starts neglecting the buildings again. And it's just like, there's way too many ways that these are affecting people who spend probably half of their lives inside of school. I think it's a combination of things. I think infrastructure concerns have been put off for a long, long time until they've kind of come to this. But I also think that is because budgeting has just not even been something the school district can think about because on the long list of things to provide for students and staff, the money is just honestly not there. Now, I'm hopeful with the federal money that's coming in to the school district from the Recovery Act will help to bring at least buildings that have asbestos and lead problems up to date. But, you know, I, I also hope that over time, you know, people realize that school environments that are gross and run down are not where students can learn comfortably. I mean, nobody likes to worry that a pipe might be leaking on their head or tiles might be actually dangerous or mice just hanging out in a classroom like that's not okay students shouldn't be subject to that one thing i've been thinking about a lot in the pandemic is this idea of safe schools uh, and safely reopening schools the idea of safely reopening schools has really it's just really made me think a lot because what what it would it mean to safely reopen the philadelphia schools given all the infrastructure needs that they have particularly ventilation systems i've thought a lot about ventilation systems you know, when you have a virus that that travels in the air, is aerosolized, and and your vent- school's ventilation systems across the board are in need of updates. You know, how how can you safely reopen? 
and particularly when you know vaccination rates vary in communities, particularly among children and young students. I mean, it wasn't safe to reopen the schools before the pandemic. That's the other thing too, right? That like in Philadelphia, the schools were already closing way before, right? Uh, there was a headline almost every day about another school um, closing down because it wasn't safe. And now uh, they're saying, well, we're gonna safely reopen and it's upsetting. I think some useful payments could come from wealthy nonprofits paying pilots and ending the tax abatement. They don't, they don't have to pay these taxes. Unfortunately, there's a law in place that lets them off the hook. And it's up to their discretion, according to the city charter, to be able to pay in lieu of the taxes that um, they're not charged. And uh, they don't do it, right? So, you know, there's been really great organizing, as, as you know, uh, to try and pressure them to, to pay these. And Penn recently, you know, offered $100 million, which sounds like a lot of money. But when you remember all I think about, and I think about this number every $4.5 billion. Mm -hmm. $4.5 billion. That's million not even 10%. I mean, it's barely... It's barely a fraction of a percent. I mean, it's it's so small. Um, you know, it's uh, you know, and, and the tax abatement again, property isn't isn't taxed the way that it should be. It was a policy that was put in place in, in order to grow the you know in order to grow the city, which in fact it did grow, um, and property taxes has have increased pretty significantly. Um, and you know, it would gen again, it would generate revenue. Um, would it generate $4.5 billion right now? Probably not. Uh, I actually, in fact, know that it wouldn't, even though, I mean, of course, these things are what we should be fighting for. Um, you know, in my own research and my own organizing, one thing that I've uh, been thinking about actually since the pandemic because this is a problem just as much, like the, the pilots and the abatement are taxes and taxes are grants, you know, that the essentially come when the city taxes the property and then gives the money you know, to a budget. Um, but school infrastructure, the taxes and grants are only one way of funding schools. The other way, and both happen, are through loans. Um, and infrastructure, it's typically a kind of, loan funded thing. That's the way, the, the way that infrastructure gets funded, it's not an operating cost. It's what they call capital expenditure, which is something that's super expensive upfront. You need a lot of money, one-time project kind of thing. And um, that means I think we need, we need to think about, um, we need to think creatively about how to get the right kinds of loans for what we need in terms of school infrastructure. And something really neat happened in the pandemic um, which is that the Federal Reserve uh, of the United States, it's a reserve bank, central bank, started a, a program called the Municipal Liquidity Facility, which was meant to provide low-cost loans. Well, not, it wasn't meant to provide low-cost loans, but it was meant to provide loans to local governments um, in the pandemic to provide liquidity to municipalities. And the program was structured in a way that the, the loans were not low cost. And it was a lot of barriers to entry on the program. But the idea around the program really opened up this possibility, which is that we should demand 
that the Federal Reserve provide no cost loans to municipalities for this kind of problem. Um, we could get the kinds of sums that we need uh, at the rates that we deserve as a school district for this project if the Federal Reserve were to create a program for it. Um, and I think that adding that demand, there's ACRE, the Action Center for Race and Economy, and the group I organize with LILAC, um, we've been working on this demand uh, because I think we need to add it into the kind of suite of demands, like with the pilots and with the abatements to be able to get the, the right kind of money to solve this problem. Gramsci says uh, that we should have pessimism of the intellect and an optimism of the will. So <laughs> when we're fighting for these kinds of programs and we're fighting for justice in general, that kind of pessimism, you know, is really important. But there's also, I think, maybe an optimism we have to try to maintain uh, as, we, as we do that, and as we fight for, for these demands. I have this dream, it's almost like a fantasy, where the city is able to get a, no a huge no-cost loan from an entity like the Federal Reserve. It's not a private bank. There's no fees associated with it. It's just credit from the federal government to be able to take care of our schools and that the district pulls together with um, unions in the city, construction unions, trade unions, but also um, the movement ecology on the left and everyone kind of comes together and there's this like, there are construction sites around every school, you know, that just blossom like flowers, employment increases because you need to hire tons of people to work on the schools. Um, and suddenly in communities, they see all of these new materials coming into the schools, you know, their friends and their family are getting hired to work on it. Um, and then that sense of disillusionment, that sense of distrust maybe eases because, because there's work being done. Um, and there's a structure in place to continue doing it. That's my fantasy, you know, that's my, yeah. that's my dream. Um, that's why I keep, you know, working on this stuff to try to make something like that a reality. And also I think frankly, on top of all that, that those infrastructure updates need to be green. They need to be zero emissions because buildings actually do a lot of carbon emissions. And I think it's win-win. I think uh, it creates more activity in the city just more, more activity, more activity, more activity generates that excitement and activity and education is this long-term thing and it'll have these long-term benefits, but yeah, I, I hope for that yeah. to be the outcome. Just with budgeting issues you mentioned earlier, right? You said you were hopeful with like the money coming from the recovery act, but that's kind of like also like kind of short term. So like to keep it long term, where do you think some of the money can come from? So I think there are a couple of ways. And I think with just to go back to the Recovery Act money, I think it would be best used to do some of the eradicating asbestos and lead in the building. But with regard to other sources of funding, I, I really do believe in the pilots program for both Penn, Drexel, and I think Jefferson is also going through some of that organizing. But I also think um, something that's particularly effective would be to cut ties with uh, Wall Street. So 
When I say that, the loans that big corporate banking um, offer to the school district, the amount of interest that the school district has to pay is well into the millions. And if the school district cut ties with those lenders and was able to receive um, low cost or no cost loans, meaning no interest, then I think the city would be able to actually have much more space in its budget because it wouldn't be just paying it out in interest to these, these places. I think that's one of the big potential places for budget money. But I also think we need to end the tax abatement in the city, uh, that there's no reason why it should exist, especially when there are buildings that are just in really bad shape. A socialist group that I work with called Lilac in the city, um, we also work with ACRE. I think Action Center for Race and the Economy is what it stands for. There's a cancel Wall Street campaign that really uh, talks about how if we had funding from you know, the government and not these corporate, um, we'd be in a lot better shape. So I, I wish I could remember the exact figures, but I know that they're out there with Acre and Lilac. Not only has the physical state of the school buildings been harmful to the students, but also the school district's plans and ideas have been very harmful too. Their plans during COVID-19 have personally made me very worried. So what do you think about it? I heard about it in the news, especially um, about, I guess, um, they were trying to reopen back classes, schools, I mean, for students. And I heard also about teachers protesting to not open it due to like them, the health conditions, because um, the COVID affects not just um people but people who are um who have health conditions such as um diseases or anything they have um so i didn't i didn't agree with that part i think they should not reopen until next year not this year um i felt nervous i don't take the bus but i go walking but like it'll, it'll feel weird go going to school like knowing that the disease is out there and at that time the cure was not there and we didn't know how COVID like actually worked until now. So yeah, I basically would feel a little frightened a bit about the situation. Do you have like any like um, younger siblings or anything that had to like go back to school early? And yeah, um, some of my, I have two siblings and they're small, they go to BK, so they go to school. Um, it's, it's small, there's not that many kids going to the school, so but I sometimes feel scared because I know it's not, they can't contact the disease that easily, but still they can bring the disease at home. And like my parents can be vulnerable to the disease because my mom has, my mom is, my mom like uh, has health conditions too. So I'm kind of afraid of that. When did your siblings like go back to school? Um, like in early, like two months ago, they like going to school. I mean, I miss school. I don't like doing virtually, but it's yeah. just scary due to the disease. Some of my teachers um, in fairness protested also because of the conditions in our school. And they went, I don't know where they went, but they protested about our condition in our school because it was really bad. They, like, I don't know how to explain the 
condition in our school. But yeah, they didn't want to go because some of them have health conditions and they're afraid to get COVID, which could cause um, their family to endanger it. I know how they wanted like to reopen and like hybrid and all that. Did you feel like um, a lot of students had a say in all of the decision making? So, I mean, our, our students, we didn't like have a, they didn't like, I guess they didn't hear us or anything. They didn't care about our opinion. Do you know, like, if they included, like, your parents or its teachers' opinions also? Parents and teachers, but not that much of the students. I do not think they are well thought out. I do not think that there was much effort to connect planning with the school communities, teachers, parents, and the students. In my particular case, you know, I have been sort of distanced from the plan So my school is not going back in person in any form this year. But, you know, when I hear about teachers doing a hybrid learning model where they have maybe two or three students in the classroom and the rest virtually uh, while having to go into the buildings themselves, I truly do not understand the benefit. I recognize that parents have had a hard time with childcare and balancing work from home. But I also feel like it's so short-sighted because it still puts teachers at risk. Um, Schools that have opened have had to go back onto a virtual platform because someone has been exposed or sick. And even from sort of the educator's perspective, there's no really solid evidence that shows that learning in person is the ultimate way. Now, Given the choice in a normal time, I would say, yes, I'd prefer to teach in person, hands down. But after being virtual since last March, I think disrupting schedules and routines is more detrimental than trying to figure out how to communicate through Zoom. All of my teachers, I feel like they're kind of used to online now and they're frustrated that they have to go back next week and like try to make everything back to school again and bring all like their books and stuff yeah for sure and I mean it's like I said with procedures it's you know everybody gets into a routine and then all of a sudden you have to figure it out from scratch in the last quarter of the school year (laughs) relatedly I think that you know what I've also learned recently about standardized testing being part of the return plan Um, That is extremely frustrating because that is additional instructional time that's lost. And given that um, I think the graduating classes of 2022 and 23 are now required to pass keystones and their classes in in different combinations in order to graduate. And I feel that it's, it's a big risk still for students, but I just think it was poorly planned out. I think it was a rush decision just to go back for going back sake. And I I truly don't think that school communities were involved. I think part of this sort of rush at the end, I mean, as teachers are getting vaccinated, which is great, and I'm one of them, but I, I think it still doesn't consider, you know, students, it doesn't consider you know, I personally, when I, I go to work, I take SEPTA. So, you know, all the people that could come in contact 
during commute, I, I think more than anything, right now is a time to be better safe than sorry. Now, why do you think that the school district of Philadelphia plans were rushed or ineffective? Well, I think, you know, even going back into, I think, February, when there was another push to go back, you know, teachers protested. And it was, I think, the K through second grade teachers were outside of their school buildings teaching um, in the cold because they didn't want to go back in the building. And logic would, would suggest that after that, the school districts and administrators would want to have open communication. But I still feel as though that this gradual re-entry into in-person, it doesn't take into account of students, teachers, procedures are not easy to just suddenly flip on and off. So I think had there been more communication there would have been a little more care into thinking about what it would mean to go from being in front of a computer all day to suddenly going back. I know some of my teachers are going into schools and still teaching their entire class on um, the computer. So there's no like real reason for them to go back because they don't teach any freshman classes, but they still have to go into the school. I just think that's kind of like counterintuitive. There's no real reason for the school district to push everyone back in, but yeah. I guess it was worse because us students, especially high school students, uh, need to go to high school, I guess, to like get their (laughs) study. I mean, I guess virtually didn't work that much. I've seen like a lot of students absent in classes because I go to classes and most students don't even pay attention like me. I also don't pay that much attention because it's boring. But I guess they wanted students to interact more, pay attention more in class, having their educations better. Do you feel like teachers had like a lot of support like in the beginning when it switched to all online? Um, yes, no. I think there was at least more grace about it in that people were a little more patient about learning how to use all of this. You know, I did sit through some trainings with how to use different learning tools like quizzes and Nearpod and you know all of those that students are probably so tired of hearing about but I think as the year has gone on not that people have gotten impatient not that they've gotten less mindful of the challenges of the tech but I think it's not addressed like as intensely as it was at the beginning. As a student, I've always wondered, how has teaching online been for teachers? It's been okay. <laughs> I, I won't say it's been a disaster because I, you know, students have shown up and they've done the work. And in a certain sense, being a, a social studies teacher, I'm fortunate that there have been many opportunities to talk about social studies and current events, which isn't to say that the current events themselves are tragic and should not be happening. Um, But because of that, it's been a way to keep students engaged. But nobody likes teaching online. I think nobody likes learning online. You you miss things like hearing the sounds of paper on desks even. But all things considered, it's going, I think, as well as it can. Do you like have any Wi-Fi issues or anything? 
All the time. Yes, all the time. Ranging from students cutting in and out or students having to go between their phones and a Chromebook because something's happened with one or the other. Students tell me I froze on their end. Yeah, any any number of things. And of course, I've also had instances where Zoom won't cooperate and everybody is asking me where I am and if I cancel class or something. <laughs> no. It's, it's, it's really inspiring. All kinds of organizations, like Philly Student Union is doing a lot of excellent work. And um, there are just so many groups in, in our city, our schools, and the coalition uh, jobs, jobs, um, jobs, jobs with justice. justice, doing the pilots work, you know, we're all, we're all working at this, you know, we're all hoping for it. Yeah. I, and I also like how all these organizations were all able to come together and work on it together. I feel like teamwork and communication is key to overcoming everything that's coming on with schools right now. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and we saw that on the push for the abatement. You know, I think that made a difference. We're seeing it on the push for pilots. I think, uh, I think we'll just, we'll keep pushing and yeah. keep, uh, keep that optimism of the will. <laughs> you can support the Push for Healthy Schools too. Keep a lookout for organizations such as Asian Americans United, or AAU, um, Juntos, Acre, and of course, Vietlead. There are so many more organizations that it's impossible to list them all. They always have opportunities for volunteering, and you can even join in on their protests. Be sure to keep an eye out for the upcoming podcast talking about pilots and the tax abatement.